Well, good morning, Hannaford Church. What a great day to be in the house of the Lord. Amen. Uh, I'm really excited, uh, privileged. I want to thank uh, Pastor John and the Elder Board for this opportunity. Uh, it's a tremendous blessing to me. Uh, anyone who's ever filled pulpit before knows that um, this experience, the whole preparation part of it and everything leading into it, and then the experience itself is really unparalleled. The emotions that you go through as you seek what it is that God wants you to say and just as he prepares your heart to deliver the message. Uh, it's such an exciting experience for me, and I, I really am honored just to be here today. Uh, so as before we dive in this morning, I'd, I'd like to just um, take a time of prayer over this message and over everyone here today. So pray with me. Father God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the liberty that we have to gather together to discuss your word, Lord. I pray that your word would reign supreme this morning, that our hearts would be transformed by what we encounter in this text today, uh, and that whatever baggage, whatever distractions each of us bring into this sanctuary today, Lord, that we would be able to discard those and just to listen to your voice. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So last Sunday, uh, as I arrived here at church, um, I had quite a roller coaster of emotions. I, I was delightfully surprised when I walked in, and uh, as Jezer mentioned, I lead the first impressions team here. So I, I took the bulletin, and uh, Shane was preaching, and I saw that he had titled his message, How to Connect with God. So I thought, man, that's going to be that's going to work in perfect tandem with what I want to preach next Sunday. I was really excited to see that that was the topic of Shane's message. And then I walked in here and I I took my place down there on about the third or fourth row next to my wife, and uh, I saw Shane walk up on the stage in a tie, and I thought, man, he has set the bar way up here. Now, I, now I'm going to have to wear like a suit next week and, and get all dressed up and it's supposed to be like 100 degrees. Uh, well, as you can see, that wasn't happening, uh, mostly because I figured when, when Jezer speaks next week, he'd have to get up here in like a tuxedo and we all know that that, that was never going to happen. So uh, you might ask me, well, what was it about Shane's message that excited you? What was it that kind of thought you thought this is just going to work perfectly together. Well, as you saw in the video that we just played, um, there's a passage in Matthew's gospel, the 22nd chapter, where the Pharisees confront Jesus and they try to trap him with a question. And the question is this, what is the greatest commandment? What is the greatest commandment? The passage goes like this. He's the, the lawyer, the, the Pharisee says, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus responded by saying, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So if these two commands, the idea of loving God there and the idea of loving your neighbor if those are the two most important commandments i would argue and you would probably agree with me that it's certainly in our best interest to take heed and pay close attention to those words to further kind of illustrate and drive home this point i took the leisure this week to 
uh, browse the website of several local churches and to kind of look at uh, what are churches saying their, their motto, their mission statement is. This is kind of what I came across. Here at Hannaford, as Shane pointed out, uh, if you look in your bulletin, it says connecting people with God and with each other. Another church, their, their mission statement, their motto was love God, love others, and multiply love. There was another one that said to know God and to make him known, leading people to life in Jesus, glorifying God by being and by making disciples, know, live, and share life in Christ. Now you notice a lot of similarities in each of those mission statements and each of those mottos. Each of them reference either loosely or more directly the commands that I just read out of Matthew 22, this idea of the great commandment that we as Christians in all aspects of our life, we're supposed to love God and we're supposed to love one another. We're supposed to love our neighbor as ourself. So if that's what the great, great, greatest commandment is, then we should be about that, right? We as the church should be about uh, living those commands out in our everyday life. When we think about loving God and loving each other, there's a vertical component and a horizontal component, right? There's this idea that if we love God, that's sort of the basis here. And we have to get that in line in order to properly love our neighbor, which is more of a, an outward expression of what loving God is. Loving, loving others is a visual depiction, it's an illustration, it's a living out, a carrying out of what it means to love God. Because the character of God is love. So if we love one another, if we love our neighbor, that's how we faithfully demonstrate to the world that we love our God. So these work in tandem with each other. They, they must be, um, each component must be with the other one. So today, in our message, I want us to focus in on the second part of this command. Last week, Shane talked about loving God, so today we're going to focus in on what it means to love our neighbor. It's no secret that over the last three years, life has been hard, right? We've been going through this thing called the COVID-19 pandemic, and Life has changed. It, was, it arrived unexpectedly. Most of us were unprepared. We had no idea what it meant to live in a pandemic world. We had never experienced that before. But it's impacted nearly every aspect of our life, even church life, right? I guarantee you if you were to poll our staff, um, any, any of our church leaders, and ask them about various discussions that they've had, or decisions that they've made over the last two and a half years, there would be a tremendous number of discussions and decisions that they never planned on making in ministry. It had never crossed their mind before. But that's the world that we live in today. Uh, it's different than it was two, three years ago. Our family uh, has been tremendously impacted by COVID. There are about four different areas that I really... Uh, thought that I would highlight this morning, but there's probably more. Uh, there, there's adverse physical circumstances, right? We all know someone who's been sick, maybe even passed away from the virus. Um, there's been tremendous physical uh, adversity that we've had to overcome over the last few years. 
depending on who you trust and who you follow, somewhere around a million Americans have died during this pandemic. It's tragic. It, it's, it's hard to stomach to think about the tremendous loss that we've experienced. Not only the physical, but also the mental and emotional. I, I looked up some research and some statistics this week by George Barner's research group, and I came across a few statistics that I thought were really interesting. Barna said that 38% of adults were less satisfied with their mental health and emotional well-being compared with pre-pandemic levels. Now, honestly, I'm surprised that that number is not higher, but the fact remains that a lot of people out there are struggling with their mental health, their emotional well-being, trying to find a new normal. Not only that, but 65% of adults admitted to dealing with some level of anxiety over the past few years. That's a majority of people that have experienced anxiety and worry on a, on a real level. Not only that physical and mental, but also occupational. Many of us have changed jobs. We've undergone uh, work changes through this season. Um, Barna said that about half of all employed adults through the pandemic are working at home and about one in three are doing so exclusively. So what's the significance of that? Well, for, for those of us, and I, and I was one of them until March, for the last six years I've been working at home, and, and that's fine, there are definitely advantages to that, but it, it, it's also isolating. It's keeping us apart from fellowship and community that we were designed to be in. The last kind of area that I wanted to explore this morning is the relational component. And, and it's kind of tangential to some of these other ones that I've already talked about. But Barna said that 57% of Americans had altered plans or missed important events because of the pandemic. Again, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of surprised that that number is not a little bit higher. But the fact remains that we've had to shift our plans. We've had to change our expectations. 46% of U.S. adults are less satisfied with their social life. Uh, than pre-pandemic levels. So as we think about this relational component, I would say and I would assert to you this morning that I think we can all agree that Genesis teaches us that God created us to be together. God created us for fellowship and community and that's how we were designed. Um, and it's been difficult to live that out through the pandemic for the reasons that I just talked about and the statistics that we just looked at. As far as this togetherness to component, there are really two sides that we have to consider. You have to, when, it, when we talk about loving your neighbor, you have to talk about your fellow church member, uh, loving uh, our fellow church member in various ways, but there's also this idea of loving our neighbor uh, who has no interest in God, no relationship with God, no seeming need for God. Uh, there's also that kind of evangelistic dynamic as well. I've been on two uh, international mission trips in my day, and both of those trips taught me a tremendous amount about what it meant to live in Christian community and fellowship. The first of those experiences occurred in May of 2006, and uh, it's, it's kind of hard to think about this right now. I found myself in May of 2006 in eastern Ukraine. 
in a town called Lugansk, about 20 miles from the Russian border. We were, I was, it was a part of a college team, and we were there uh, kind of doing a service construction-oriented project, helping a church put in a, a new concrete floor. But I can remember uh, the, the church would serve us lunch every day. And there was a cooking crew, and I, I remember this well because uh, the head cook, uh, we were told by our translator that she had been uh, the cook for one of the Soviet Olympic teams. And so she, her, her kind of mission, her identity was rooted in cooking, and that, that was who she was, and she took great pride in that. And uh, so she would, she would feed us every day while we were working there at their church. And um, if, you, if you notice my build, I, you know, there's not too many meals that I've skipped in my day. And our, our team, a lot of, a, a, virtually our whole team was kind of built like me, except for my friend Colin, who's about this tall and weighs about 120 pounds. And so this cooking team would cook this extraordinary amount of food. And in their culture, we were expected to eat all of it. And so we, the, the big guys were struggling, and Colin, bless his heart, he was, he was shoving food in his pants pockets. <laughs> I mean, it, it, was a real, it was a real test for him. But what I remember about that time and about those eating experiences was we would, we would be in there for over an hour, and we would really have this intense time of community and fellowship that would break out into worship every day. That, that group of, of Ukrainians would sing worship songs and give testimonies, and it was just very powerful to be a part of. And it taught me so much about what it meant as the body of Christ to be together. The point that I'm trying to make is that loneliness and isolation are, are really at an all-time high in our country, and in Montana too. Let us not say that that's characteristic of Hannaford Street Bible Church. We have to love each other well and carry that love outside of our church property as well. So for the best case study that I can think of on what it means to love your neighbor, I want us this morning to dive into Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25, this is the story, the parable that Jesus teaches that we call the Good Samaritan. It's, it's one of the most familiar Bible stories um, that I know that, that it's taught, and so I think it will help us this morning to identify what obedience to that second great commandment looks like. So Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25, follow along as I read. And a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law, and how does it read to you? He answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? So Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. By chance, a priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. 
But a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion and came to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell in the robber's hands? And he said, the one who showed mercy toward him. Jesus said, go and do the same. So anytime we get out our Bibles and we read, we have to first consider context. This is a story within a story. Jesus was famous for sharing parables, for teaching through stories that he called parables. Not only is it the passage itself a story within a story, but it's also a story within Luke's story, right? One of the most pivotal verses in the Gospel of Luke is found a chapter prior. It's Luke chapter 9, verse 51, and it says this, As the time approached for him to be taken to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Now there's a dramatic shift that takes place here. Jesus has been ministering in a region called Galilee in the north, but, but Luke there in chapter 9, verse 51, that says, Jesus all of a sudden became resolute. He was focused on an end goal to his mission. He was headed to Jerusalem. He was headed there to die and to be raised again. And so this story, this story in Luke 10, takes place right after that. As I said, he had been up to this point ministering in a region called Galilee. And in order to get to Jerusalem, Jesus would have had to travel through this region called Samaria. Samaria was directly between Galilee and Jerusalem, and there were various roads that traveled through there, but Jews did not mix with Samaritans at all. And so in order to avoid that region of Samaria, Jews would travel around the Jordan River to the other side and come in Jerusalem from the other, from the other direction. They would go way out of their way just to stay out of contact with Samaritans. To briefly, to briefly explain uh, the kind of the rift that had taken place here, to give you a little bit of history and context, about 900 years uh, before the time of Jesus, Israel, as you know from your Old Testament studies, Israel was divided into two kingdoms, the north and the south. And Samaria was part of that northern kingdom. When the Assyrians came and conquered uh, Israel in 732 B.C., they carried out, out most of their captives back to their homeland, but they left a few people, a few Jews behind, and they also left some Assyrians to settle the region. And so they, the, the descendants of those people intermarried, and so you had these um, Gentiles that were married with, with some of the Jews that remained, um, and so they kind of adopted some Jewish practices along with some Gentile practices, and their, their religion experience became a little bit distorted. So there was created this rift between the Jews and the Samaritans because these Samaritans still considered themselves ethnic Jews, but the, the actual Jews totally disagreed with that. And so they hated each other. They literally despised one another and they, they would not even tolerate being around each other. And so that's this, the context that we find ourselves in. Uh, not only that, but this is a story that's rooted in the Old Testament and the Mosaic Law. The first command 
of the great commandment is the Shema, which you would read from Deuteronomy uh, chapter 6, and, and the, the neighbor command is found in Leviticus chapter 19. So when this lawyer, when this expert, this Pharisee approaches Jesus, he's in his wheelhouse, right? He knows the law. This is his turf. This is his ground, or so he thought. Our first exposure in Luke 10 in this story in verse 25 is we're immediately called, we're, the fact is immediately highlighted that this lawyer has impure intentions. Reread uh, verse 25 again with me. It says, And a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? So the, the lawyer's motive, he's challenging Jesus' authority. He's saying, Wait a minute, I'm the expert here. I get to, I get to play this out how I want to. And so there's this immediate challenge, and it says he stood up. He wanted to take the high ground above Jesus and stood up and, and sort of supersede whatever authority Jesus was claiming. So this morning, as we reflect on this passage, I want to posit four truths about what it means to be a neighbor as Jesus defines it. Each one builds on the previous one, and we have to do all four in order to really qualify as a gospel neighbor. Number one this morning is that neighbors see needs. The setting of this story, it says immediately that uh, when we get into the actual uh, parable, is that a man was going from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, as Jesus is telling this to the lawyer, there's th the wheels are turning in his mind. You see, this road from Jerusalem to Jericho was about 17 miles long. It was a long day's journey, but it was a hard road. The terrain was hard, it was dangerous, it was perilous because it was mountainous, but also thieves were notorious for being in this region. It had, this road had a bad reputation, and so when he says there was a man walking on this road, the lawyer obviously said, well, uh-oh, he's in trouble. And so that's the setting that we're giving, that we're given, excuse me, um, but all three of the visitors that were given in the parable, um, they saw the need, right? They were available to help. Um, Jesus' parable notes that the priest and the Levite saw the man, but that they passed by on the other side of the road. Based on the character of those individuals in Jewish custom life, the, the lawyer would have expected it would have been part of their job description to stop and help this individual. But it says they, they went by. They, they ignored the need. Not only were they available, but all three visitors were aware. They saw what was going on here. They saw the tragedy that had taken place and the, the peril that this man was in. So neighbors see needs. What needs do you see? What needs do we have in our community? I would just quickly highlight, too, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but our community has a lot of homelessness. There's a tremendous need in that area. There, there, there's need for us to get involved and to help out in that area. Not only homelessness, but also suicide. We know the statistics. We know what's taking place even in our own community, in the school systems with regard to suicide. It's a tremendous problem, and there's, there's opportunity available for us to get involved and to help meet some of those existential needs that our community has.
Secondly, neighbors meet needs. Can we all agree this morning that identifying a problem is not solving a problem? If you walk out of these doors in a few minutes to your car and you find a flat tire, does noticing that flat tire resolve your issue and get you on the road? No, it doesn't. Of course not. You have to fix it. You have to meet the need. So that's, that's the discrepancy here that we're called to, to see, is that the, Samaritan, the distinction between the Samaritan and the other two individuals is that he got involved. He made himself vulnerable, and he attempted to meet the need that this traveler had. <clears throat> when people enter our path as Christians, I wonder if we see them as neighbors or if we see them as nuisances. The goal of today's message is that we might consider even one relationship in our life currently and how we might take someone that we consider a nuisance and, and, and make them a neighbor. Someone that you're unwilling to love, someone, someone that you're unwilling to get involved with. What would it take to change, to make that subtle change where you consider them a neighbor instead of a nuisance? Because that's what Jesus did. Jesus valued everyone to the utmost, even this lawyer who despised him. You see, our awareness of the need is insufficient. We have to go beyond that. And that's what I was saying is that the Samaritan got involved. He got his hands dirty. Neighbors, church, are transformed by their awareness of a need, and they move to action. There's something that has to initiate that change. There's something that has to spur us to meet the need in order for us to get involved. And for the Samaritan, that was compassion. It wasn't guilt. He saw the need, and he felt compassion on this traveler. He saw the need and knew that it must be met. Guilt if, if, if guilt is our motivator, it's never transformative. It will be a poor motivator. So our three candidates that were given for neighbor here, the, the true neighbor was compassionate while the priest and the Levite just ignored it. They just walked by, they stayed comfortable on the other side of the road, and they didn't get their hands dirty. What obstacles do you think prevented them from, from altering their path in that slightest amount? Was it fear? I talked about this road being dangerous. They thought maybe the robbers are still close by. Maybe they'll come back. Was it apathy or indifference? Maybe sometimes we all know we just fail to love people, right? They're right there in front of us and we just don't care. Was it inconvenience? Maybe they had somewhere to be or a scheduled appointment. We get preoccupied with our own schedule and our own calendars and we prioritize that above the needs that are glaring right in front of us. Maybe it's boundaries, some type of boundary that was set up. Again, whether it's seeing needs or meeting needs, that's only part of the process. That's only part of the process of what it means to be a neighbor. Our third point this morning is that neighbors love with no boundaries. These first two points I focus more on the parable itself, the story uh, of the traveler and, and within the story. And points three and four, we're going to kind of zoom out and take place that, that uh, and we're going to watch the actual encounter that's taking place between Jesus and this Pharisee. 
One of my favorite sitcoms growing up was Home Improvement with Tim Allen. Any fans of Home Improvement out there? It was a really funny show. Uh, Tim was a not-so-handy man who had his own tool show, and inevitably, in just about every episode, some crisis arose with either one of his sons or his wife or on the job with his workmate, Al. But Tim always found himself in crisis at some point. And where did Tim go to get his help? He went out in the backyard where there was this eye-level fence, and he found his neighbor, Wilson. And, and what was interesting about Wilson was the TV show made it a point to never show Wilson's face in its entirety. Um, but I think the producers of that sitcom were making a point. I think they were saying because Wilson obviously had gone to counseling school or something because no matter what Tim's problem was, Wilson always had the solution. He knew he had read books. He, he just knew whatever the problem was, he could solve it. <clears throat> but in showing this boundary between the neighbor, I think the producers there were communicating something about what it meant to get involved. Wilson was willing to speak into his life, but he almost never crossed the fence and actually went into Tim's yard. So I think many times we as Christians build boundaries in our life where we excuse ourselves in certain situations and we say, I don't have to be a neighbor here. It's, I'm, not, I'm under no obligation. Notice the lawyer's second question there. He says, who is my neighbor? And that's what launches Jesus's, Jesus into the parable. You see, when he quoted um, the law, Jesus, Jesus said, do this and you're going to live. But the, the lawyer certainly felt the tension and the impossibility that Jesus was creating with that answer. He knew, well, I can't actually do this. I can't actually love my neighbor like I love myself. That's impossible. So when he posits this next question, who is my neighbor, the lawyer assumes this category of non-neighbor that he wants Jesus to validate. He's redefining the terms. I'm not going to launch into a side story, but our culture is extremely good at doing this. They like to redefine terms. They like to change definitions on the fly and say, well, that, that definition's no longer convenient. And that's what the lawyer's doing here. He's saying... I don't want your definition of neighbor. I want to find where you're going to tell me that I don't have to be a neighbor. So he's attempting to redefine the terms. He's attempting to limit who might qualify. Let's consider some of these categories that we might place on who a non-neighbor is. We might draw a line ethnically. We have racial prejudices that might prevent us extending God's love to some people. What about spiritual? Sometimes we resent people that have different theological convictions or maybe no theological convictions. Maybe they're political. There's a political divide. Would you be a neighbor to somebody who, who voted differently than you do? Or is that, to, is that an area that's off limits? Having considered some of these possible boundaries, I want us to look back at the story and press in briefly to the tension that Jesus is creating in the lawyer's heart and in his mind. You see, this was more than a nuisance. The Samaritan had risked his life for someone who would have been an enemy. And that was not lost on this lawyer. 
as I told you, there was great resentment between Jews and Samaritans for the reasons that we talked about earlier historically. The ill will was so deep-rooted that Jews actually had ritualistic prayers against Samaritans. These people despised one another. The expected response for the Samaritan would have been to simply scoff at the man in the ditch and mutter, you know what, he had it coming to him. I don't have any remorse, no sympathy, certainly no compassion. Then Jesus introduces these three individuals in the, in the story. The priest comes first, somebody who would have had religious authority, somebody who would have been expected to aid the poor and the needy. Then you have the Levite, who would have been like the priest's helper. And so it's like we're working down a list here, but wait a minute. Then you come to a Samaritan. That's not what we would have expected. We would have expected some type of layperson, some, some person further down the Jewish hierarchy. But Jesus lifts right out of the hierarchy and places a Samaritan there, someone this man would have despised. He goes completely off the grid and posits this scandalous result to the story that the traveler was completely dependent on his enemy for aid. Our last point this morning is that neighbors display God's grace. We talked about the lawyer and his intentions with this encounter. He, he, he was very intentional with what he was trying to accomplish. But, you know, Jesus didn't just happen to walk into this conversation. I think he was equally as purposeful in this encounter as the lawyer was. Jesus is ultimately and ironically the perfect good Samaritan in this story. Have you ever considered why Jesus tells stories in the first place? Does he do it to illustrate moral character? Does he do it to, because he has a good imagination? No, I don't think that's it. Contrary to conventional wisdom, Jesus is not trying to create kind, moral people through his telling of parables. There's plenty of skeptics out there that say Jesus was just a moral teacher, but I think when you read stories like this and the parable of the prodigal son that those people don't have very good reading comprehension skills. Jesus is not proposing kindness or goodness. He's proposing faith. This is personal evangelism 101. He's, he's trying to highlight to this man, you know the law, you know it better than anybody, but it hasn't transformed your life. So as we close this morning, I want to juxtapose for a minute the Samaritan and the lawyer. I mentioned before in his interaction with Jesus that the lawyer had this attitude that communicates that, hey, I'm searching for a minimum standard of holiness. I, I, what, what do I have to do to get by? But the lawyer, uh, excuse me, the and he, he, he approached him with supreme self-confidence. But in contrast, the Samaritan walks up and he approaches this beaten man and goes extravagantly further than he was ever required to. He bandaged the man. He dealt with the need at hand. But not only that, he provided him his own transportation. He found shelter for him. And not only did he find it, but he covered the cost of it. His enemy saved his life. I want you to notice where Jesus very intentionally and very provocatively places the lawyer in this parable. 
He doesn't make him one of the people in the encounter. He makes him the actual man that was beaten up. He tells the parable to this man so that he would equate himself with the man who was attacked. He wants to present the story in a way that the lawyer's character is helpless. He has no way out other than to rely on somebody else's aid. Jesus is turning the table on him. He's saying, look, you don't have eternal life. You don't know what it means to love your neighbor. But the salvation that I offer is a free gift of grace. All you have to do is accept it. All you have to do is humble yourself and come to a place where you can grapple with that. Popular pastor and author Tim Keller writes these words, you will never be a neighbor until you get a neighbor. Isn't that a powerful statement? You're never going to be a neighbor until you get a neighbor. Why do you think Keller says that? He's saying, until you experience what it means to be in a place where you can't do anything for yourself, you're not going to fully come to terms with and wrestle with what it means to be a neighbor. You're not going to be able to be a neighbor until, you, until someone's been a neighbor for you. Did you notice how the lawyer could not even answer at the end that the Samaritan was his neighbor? I think humility is a tremendously hard pill to swallow. So this morning we're at a time where Jezer's going to come and lead us in communion. This should be a time of reflection, examining our hearts this morning. I encourage you to consider as, as you reflect on the parable of the Good Samaritan, where do you fit? Where do you fit in this story? Are you the Samaritan? Are you the one who goes and helps? Are you the Levite or the priest who just wants to stay conveniently across the road? Or maybe you're the traveler that was attacked. Maybe you're the one in need of God's free gift of salvation. Based on this morning's message, I want to leave us with three questions for you to reflect on during this time of communion, and they're this. Number one, are you aware of needs that are around you and making yourself available to meet those? Number two, what individual or group of people are you harboring ill will toward and classifying as a non-neighbor? Our prejudices can certainly run deep. Then lastly, if you've never done so, can you, can you humble yourself to receive the free gift of salvation from Jesus Christ? Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word and its power, Lord. We thank you for this story and the challenge that it poses to each and every one of us. God, I pray for each and every individual in this room, and I don't know where they're at and what baggage they might be bringing this morning, but Lord, I pray that you work on their hearts this morning. I pray that you bring us closer to the throne of grace uh, as we take communion and reflect on what it is that you've done for us and the sacrifice that you've made. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.